Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the coronavirus's impact on the sporting world. Beginning with a short recap of what sports have canceled and suspended their seasons, we will then move to discuss why leagues, arenas, and organizations have shut down their doors for their foreseeable future, focusing specifically on the construct of risk management. So, if you're wondering why the infection of one NBA player with the coronavirus caused a massive domino effect, or what the long-term ramifications of shutting down leagues are, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to once again do something a little bit different, just like we did in past cases where there's been breaking news in the world of sports. The last time we did something like this was when Kobe Bryant tragically died, but we also did the similar type of thing when the NCAA announced that they would be putting into place a process to allow student-athletes to receive money for their name, likeness, and image. Today, what we're dealing with, though, is something completely different and something that is so unique that there isn't an instance of this in the history of sports that I can think of outside of wars. And that is what's going on with this coronavirus. Now, initially, some behind the scenes, when I was thinking about doing a podcast on this, my thought was to really have two focuses. The first being to talk about what effect the coronavirus has had around the world within the sport industry, talking about things that have been canceled, talking about the implications of those cancellations, etc. And the second part I wanted to focus on was the risk management aspect, something that we actually teach a lot to our sport management students. Some people actually have risk management courses at their universities. Some people talk about risk management as a subset of sport law. And so I wanted to focus on that aspect of what was going on as well. But after the NBA announced that they are suspending their season for this foreseeable future, because one and now two of their players have tested positive for the coronavirus, all of a sudden things started to change very, very quick around the world, especially within American sports. The MLS announced less than 24 hours later that they were suspending all of their games for at least 30 days. The NCAA, which had initially announced that they are going to have the NCAA men's and women's basketball tournament only without fans, might be in the process of reversing course, and by the time you listen to this, might actually already have done so, as almost every conference across the country has done away with their conference tournaments and actually started suspending all sports for the foreseeable future. We had the PGA taking action and doing things like continuing to hold events but not allowing fans. We have the NFL announcing that they will actually continue to go with their normal league schedule and get into free agency in the draft and that they won't make changes. Major League Baseball is looking at having maybe teams play in front of no individuals. They're looking at maybe suspending the start of the season. We have things happening in Europe and around the world. Syria, the top Italian football league or soccer league over there has suspended play we have champions league games being suspended we have so much going on with so much news coming at us that talking about each individual one doesn't seem that relevant because by the time you listen to this most of this will probably be outdated 
instead of going with the initial plan of talking about which each league's doing, I want to take a step back and I want to focus on the bigger picture. And what does this mean for the world of sports? And I also want to focus a lot on this risk management aspect. Because risk management is such an important thing that we teach our students. It gives us some perspective in way to have a conversation around what these leagues and what countries are doing to deal with this pandemic. So let's dive into the heart of this podcast by beginning with just an understanding of what risk management is. According to the textbook that I use when I teach sport law or risk management, it is, quote, an organized plan by which a recreation or sport business can manage or control both the programmatic risk and the financial risk facing the organization, end quote. An important point here is that we're not just dealing with identifying what the risk is. It goes much deeper than that. We then have to understand why that thing is a risk and how we are going to deal with it. So it's a three-part process. Within sport management, this idea is really built around negligence theory and contract law. Negligence theory, just a quick overview, deals with what we are liable for as a business, what we could potentially be sued for, for not doing or doing incorrectly. Now, we say it also deals with contract law because one of the major solutions with risk management or after we identify a risk is to formulate a contractual agreement with another body to shift the risk away from us and in terms of something like an insurance agreement or to have specific clauses written into contracts to try to mitigate a risk from happening. In sport management, we oftentimes talk about risk management or begin to talk about risk management by talking about what type of things do we need to protect the participants of the sports against. In general, these conversations tend to be around things like physical injury. I need to do what I can to deal with the potential that an athlete could get injured. In this process, we can actually talk students and talk individuals through how this works. So we would first identify what that risk is, and we would kind of classify it in, into different categories. So something like uh, the potential that a participant could get hurt, that's a form of liability that we're facing. Now, after we identify what that risk is, we then classify it. And we ask, well, how frequently could this happen? And what is the potential degree of loss that we could face if this happens? And by loss, we mean financial loss. So with something like injuring your leg, let's say playing soccer, there's a risk of breaking your leg. Well, how frequently might that occur? It can occur a fairly high amount. We would probably call it to a moderate degree. It doesn't happen every game, but the possibility that it could happen every game is there. And what if one of our players breaks their leg? What is the potential loss that we face? Well, there is the potential for a lawsuit if we are being negligent and that's the reason why they broke their leg. But also we might be facing financial ramifications for paying for the surgery or the medical costs of that individual. So we would classify the risk as either moderate, meaning middle of the road. It could be a high risk, meaning it's happening all the time, or it could be a low risk. From a loss standpoint, you can either have a moderate loss, a high loss, or a low loss. So we have these, these classification schemes. After we classify that risk, we then determine how are we going to actually deal with that risk. What method are we going to use to reduce that risk from happening? There are four major categories that we can do. We can try to avoid the risk by changing the rules or the practices of what's going on. We can try to transfer that risk. This is what we do with insurance agreements. We have insurance for things that displace the risk. So someone else 
is now assuming that risk. We can retain that risk, meaning we know the risk there, but it happens at such a low occurrence rate and the loss is so low, that's not a big deal. If it does occur and there is an injury that happens from it, we would just deal with it as is. Or we could try to reduce the risk, maybe through a couple of different types of things. We can add insurance policies where we defer some of the payment. We can maybe train the individuals about what's going on to try to reduce its occurrence. So we go through this three-step process of identifying the risk, classifying the risk, and then coming up with a method to treat that risk. In the sport management context, or what we would do with our students, is we would sit down and we would give them a scenario or give them an organization. And we would charge them with identifying, let's say, five risks, classifying those five risks, and then having them come up with a method that they're going to treat. Now, this is a good practice. It helps us get it in our mind in the academic setting. So that way, when you go out into the real world, you know the types of things you're looking for. This scenario that we're faced with right now is a prime example of developing a risk management plan and figuring out what we should do. Because the first thing that these leagues have done across the world, or sporting organizations have done across the world, or athletic teams have done across the world, is they've identified the risk that they have. And the risk isn't just as simple as coronavirus, because we have to classify it in maybe different categories, because we run substantial risk with the virus. There is a risk that we might have our athletes get affected. There's a risk that we might have our employees become infected. There's a risk we might have our fans become infected. That's one whole category. There's another risk though to our business operations. What happens when all these individuals or some of these individuals become infected? How could that potentially hurt our business operations? What risk do I have as a business because of what is happening to these individuals? And that risk is substantial because in a business sense, very easily we can see if I'm not playing games, there's no fans. If there's no fans, that means there's no money being generated through selling a ticket revenue. If there's no games, there's no TV. Is there a risk that I'm losing some of that money? If there are no games, there's no sponsorship agreements. Because sponsors sign on to have their brand associated with that team. If the team's not playing, there's no visual identity between the two. Is that potentially at risk? What about the risk to the general operations of my league? Because if the league is suspending play, not only does that potentially hurt what's happening on the court with the players, not only does that potentially hurt the income that I'm making, but in majority of American leagues, there's a revenue sharing system where it's not only the owners that are losing out on that money, but it's the players that are losing out on that money. And if the players are losing out on that money, how does that affect future contracts? How does that affect salary caps? How does that affect the off-season? There's so many risks that are now being associated that we have to take into consideration that most people in this hysteria that has taken over aren't sitting down and logically thinking through. So the NBA, which was the first American sport league to suspend play, what they did is they had conversations. They looked at the chances of these things happening. So they tried to classify the risk. The major risks that they face first and foremost, is a risk of individuals becoming infected with this disease and then spreading that disease to other individuals. So you worry at the beginning about your primary stakeholders. Those are the individuals that have direct interaction with the product that are being directly affected by the product that go into the production of the product, etc. In professional basketball, 
or in professional sports in America in general, our primary stakeholders are our athletes or the individuals playing the game, our coaches, our referees, our team owners. Those are primary stakeholders. So we need to look at, well, what are the chances that one of them get the disease or that all of them get the disease? And what the NBA and these other leagues were doing throughout the course of the last really two weeks that we know publicly and probably back even before that in, in private conversations was that they were talking about what are the chances of this happening? What do we know about how it's being spread? What do we know about the effect that that's going to have on an individual that is an elite athlete if they were to get it? So you're looking at those primary stakeholders, but then you have to start thinking about the secondary stakeholders. These are Individuals who don't directly have their hands on the product, but are also being effective in a secondarily way by what's happening. Things like our fans at the arenas. And so you go through this process of saying, okay, well, what if one of our players gets it or one of our officials gets it or one of our coaches gets it or someone that's directly impacting this production of the game? What happens if that individual gets it and how might that spread out and affect every other person that has now come in contact with that individual? So if you go through this scenario of knowing that this is a highly contagious disease, if one of our players has it at a game, there's a total of 30 players at that game, they're in such close contact with each other, breathing on each other, sweating on each other. We know that this is an airborne pathogen, that it's something that can be transferred over air, it's something can, that can be transferred if I touch a surface and someone else come behind me and touch the surface. Well, in basketball, we're passing a basketball around, so there's a high percentage that our primary stakeholders would all become infected very quickly. And then if it's in the air, there's a chance that anyone at that arena can become infected. There's a chance anyone working at that arena can become infected and that they can then take that infection with them and potentially pass it on to their families, to the people that are around them, and that it could spread. And so the NBA was trying to classify and understand, well, what is the likelihood that this happens? And if one of our players were to get it and it were to spread and there was something more severe that happens besides this them getting sick, let's say it happened to kill someone, what is the potential loss, financial loss, that the league would suffer. Not just maybe from the medical expenses, but also the potential loss in reputation and what the media is saying about them and how that could affect financial deals going forward. They initially, like many leagues did in America, they initially looked at this risk and said, well, from the information we know, we don't think that there's a huge risk of the players coming into contact with it if we kind of rope them off from everyone else. And we can mitigate or we can treat some of this risk of fans and other people getting it at the arena by not allowing them to come to games. So if we only have the 30 people that are playing the game, plus the coaching staff, plus the referees, plus the general people that we need just to function the arena, if we only have them there, we're actually reducing our risk financially because we're limiting exposure to other individuals. But in those conversations... Many of these leagues have also thought, well, there's such a low risk that one of our players will get it. And this is one of the curses that we have in sports. We know as athletes or as former athletes that when we play a sport, there is a massive chance or massive risk that we face in being injured. I have had massive number of injuries over my career uh, in high school and college. I had massive number of surgeries in my career. Every time I played, I knew I could get hurt. But every time I played, I always thought, well, it's not going to be me. And that's this curse that athletes have. They don't think 
that they are going to be the one getting injured because we treat our bodies so well. We have finely tuned them so much, especially today in professional sports, that we think we're above reproach. We think we're above these types of illnesses or diseases. And so I'm sure that a lot of this was in the minds of the athletes and then funneled through to their coaches, up to their agents, to the general manager, the the team owners, which then gets funneled to the league. That all starts to change very quickly, though, when one of your athletes actually has the disease. You start to take some of that facade away that you're invincible, and you start to see what's happening and understanding the risk much better. Because once one athlete has it, it becomes, as I said, very easy to now up that risk factor. Now it's not just there's a chance that it could spread to individuals. There's now a high likelihood. And we know a little bit about the gestation period, meaning the time from when you get the disease to when you actually show show signs, it's more than a day. We've heard it could be as much as three to four days, maybe up to a week. So you have to then backtrack, well, who has Rudy Gobert, the individual who initially tested positive, who has he played in the last week? And you track it to four teams and you say, well, then who did those teams play after? And now you start to do this and the math gets to the point where you can say, well, there's a chance that it might have spread to multiple teams and multiple individuals. So now the calculated risk and how we treat it has to change. We can't just have this in this system in place to try to reduce the risk of player exposure and reduce the potential loss of maybe having someone come into contact with this disease at our facility. Now the risk has become so high, the potential loss has become so high that we have almost no other choice than to just completely avoid the risk altogether. How do we avoid the risk? We do away with the sport. We cancel the events. Let's talk a little bit about that potential loss. This is where legally we oftentimes deal with this topic of negligence. Negligence, again, very basic negligence deals with an individual not doing something that they should do. This is referred to legally as a duty or responsibility to act in a certain way. In sport, for example, if I'm a coach, I have certain legal duties or things that I have to do. If I don't do those things, I can be found to be liable or negligent and an individual can take me to court and sue me for restitution, for correction of that wrongdoing. In soccer, let's say I'm coaching, I have a duty to, as a coach, to protect the individuals on the field, which in part means inspect the playing field before the game or the practice to make sure it's in safe conditions. Let's say I don't inspect the playing field before we go and practice. There's a huge hole in the ground. One of the players steps in that hole and breaks their leg. Well, I have violated my duty, and as a result of me violating that duty or my responsibility to that student athlete, they can then come back and they can file a lawsuit against me that they would probably win. If we take that idea, that legal theory, and we apply it to something like the coronavirus, the question becomes, what is the legal responsibility of a team, of a league, of an arena, of someone putting on an event? Well, legally, we are entitled to protect individuals. If you are coming into an arena and you're an invited guest, all fans are invited guests, we have a legal duty to warn you of any potential hazards and to protect you from those hazards. We can put up signs that warn individuals that something might occur. For example, you might get the coronavirus. The next question becomes, what are we doing to try to protect them from that? Well, we could put hand sanitizing stations up. We could increase the amount of soap that's in bathrooms. 
We could make announcements uh, throughout the game, telling people not to high five or, or touch each other. We can do all those things. But as the risk continues to increase and we now know that players have it and that it can be an airborne pathogen, meaning you can get it just by being in the same room with someone. If we know that that can happen, just having hand sanitizer isn't doing enough to legally protect the individual or legally protect the facility or legally protect the owners of the basketball team. So the risk gets really ratchet up when we know a player has it because the frequency of that that risk is going to occur, the frequency that they could spread that disease becomes very high, knowing how this disease works. But also the potential loss gets jacked way up too because we know that we have a duty to protect. And if we know athletes have this disease, that it can be transmitted, if we continue to hold a contest, I'm not doing everything I can to protect the fans, the stakeholders that are there at the arena, at the event, playing in the event themselves. When we use this notion of developing a risk management plan and we identify that there's a risk to all these different stakeholders, and when we understand that that risk is actually pretty frequent in occurrence, and if I don't do anything, I could be held more legally liable and could potentially lose even more money. Now I have no other choice but to treat it through using an avoidance technique, meaning stop the event from occurring altogether. Now, I'm not saying that they're doing the right or the wrong thing. That's, that's not really what the point of this conversation is. It's more to take you into the mindset of what's happening in these conversations. What type of things are these leagues considering? Is the risk to the athletes super high that if they get it, that they're going to have a negative outcome? We don't know enough to really make that determination. But what we do know is that this plan of action that has been put in place based off of this Uh, ideology of developing risk management plans that I just talked about, we do know it's going to have massive business operation implications. And Mark Cuban talked about it a little bit after the Mavericks game, which is where kind of the announcement went wide in the NBA that they were canceling, or I should say suspending the season. And he did well to point out that yes, it's going to affect players because if they're not playing, then there is uh, clauses that you're not getting as much money because if the games aren't happening, there's no revenue stream. There, The payment is for the service of playing basketball. So there's issues there. But players, for the most part, are making good money in these leagues. To miss a month of a paycheck shouldn't be a huge deal for them. What Cuban did a good job pointing out was what he is more concerned about are the people that are the hourly workers at these stadiums. The people that show up, that take your tickets, that show you to your seats, the security, the people that work in concessions, those aren't people that are salaried employees. Those are people that get paid for the time that they are there working. Those people, many of them, depend on that paycheck to live. If we suspend operation and we're not holding contests, that means there's no game for them to work, which means there's no paycheck. So you have hundreds of people at an arena thousands of people across the United States now that make a portion or all of their income from working these games that are now no longer going to have games to work, which has massive financial implications for individuals that are dependent upon that money. Cuban did great because he brought this up and brought attention to it and said very quickly that they were looking into a process to try to help those individuals. And they announced the next day that part of that process would be Um, to give those individuals a holiday pay or to pay them the same that they would during a holiday time where they don't have to be working, but they still get paid 
Uh, in this case, I believe he said for four days. Now, that's not going to completely save those people, but it does help them. And what he charged the league with is that we need to do this across the playing field, across all teams. We need to look at these individuals and make sure that they are protected. And it expands out because if we don't just consider the NBA, but if we consider all professional sports leagues, and not just the people that work the hourly job, but also the people that work the salary jobs, people that are in ticket sales. If there's no games going on, why do I need to have someone there selling tickets? If there's no games going on, I don't need to be having the event managers there to be planning out everything that's going on. The ripple effects within sport of not having these contests is pretty wide spanning. As a result, you're going to see leagues lose a ton of money. You're going to see leagues not be making money from ticket sales. There were some estimates I saw that if the NBA uh, last week who were talking about disbanding fan bases from coming to games and not allowing people to come to even the NBA playoffs, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars potentially across the league. Many people think, well, these are billionaire owners. Who cares? They're fine. But you also have to consider the idea of revenue sharing because within the NBA, NFL, and NHL, Each of those leagues set a salary cap based off of the income that is generated by the league. So if there is no tickets being sold, that hurts not only the owner's pocketbook, but it also affects the calculations that go into determining what the salary cap is going to be. That becomes incredibly problematic, especially in the NBA, who's already lost a ton of money based off the China issues in the preseason. And you compound that to the revenue loss that's going to occur with this, you're talking about the salary cap across the entire league being affected by 50 to $100 million. That's going to affect the players as they go into free agency. That's going to affect the current contracts that they already signed under. Uh, if you go and actually read the collective bargaining agreements, which I went in to read the MBAs specifically to see how they deal with this, They have an article, it's called Revenue Decline, and they state that if BRI, basketball-related income, the calculation that they use to determine the split of the revenue generated, so if BRI for any salary cap year substantially decreases from the prior salary cap year's BRI, and as a result, the players receive more of a designated share for such salary cap year, then the NBA and Players Association shall negotiate in good faith to agree upon an adjustment to the provisions of this agreement in a manner reasonably satisfactory to the parties to address. So in other words, if our revenue decreases substantially, the leagues are going to have to go back with the players and now work on a negotiation for how they're going to deal with that. The NBA and the NBAPA has a pretty good relationship right now. But if you look at some a league like the NFL, which has announced that they're continuing lease right now as scheduled, they're in a CBA or collective bargaining agreement negotiation right now. They're taking votes on a collective bargaining agreement for not next next season, but the year after. So this could have potential ramifications on some of that negotiation if the current version is not voted in. So there's implications there. There's so many wide-spanning implications of these leagues potentially losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I've listened to and read a number of individuals who have said that the leagues will be fine and they will rebound, and that's true because a large part of the league revenue is from TV deals, and those TV deals are guaranteed against 
against games not being played. And primarily that's done to deal with a situation if the players were to go on strike or the league was to go into a lockout. But the same rules of the contract apply to these situations. So the NBA is still getting its billion dollars from these contractual deals. Or where they might be losing out though is not just in the ticket revenue, but also in sponsorship agreements or sponsorship activation. If you go into amateur sports... Those have the potential to have even a greater effect. Something like the NCA, the NCA's big moneymaker, how they fund majority of the association is through the men's and women's basketball tournament, primarily through the revenue that's created from the men's basketball tournament in the CBS deal. There is no basketball tournament, though. There's questions about how that contract actually will work out and if the NCA could take a major hit to their revenue. The NCA does have a lot of money in the bank for a rainy day, as they've always said, so they could tap into those reserves to try to offset some of this loss. But whereas professional athletes can play until they retire, NCAA athletes have limited eligibility. So when you're dealing with a senior who's playing basketball for a school like Belmont, who's already qualified for the NCAA tournament, if you cancel the tournament, you're now depriving that senior an opportunity to play on that level. Could that affect draft stock? Potentially. Could it just affect their overall experience? Definitely. So banning all these sporting events at the NCAA level or at the college or high school level could have really negative ramifications for the individual participant, especially when we talk about interscholastic and intercollegiate athletics, because so much of the sell of those, so much of the argument for having those sports at that level is the experience itself, that we can learn from that experience, that we're providing all these opportunities to these student-athletes. Well, if I remove those opportunities, I'm removing some of the purpose for even having the sports at that level in the first place. So will they create hardship waivers and allow individuals to have extra years of eligibility based on the fact that the season was canceled? We don't know yet, but those are ramifications that we might see. Outside of just the initial sporting event and the loss of revenue that's generated from that, You also have to look at the city that's not hosting that event anymore. Here in Nashville, the SEC tournament was canceled. We were expecting, uh, uh, from estimates I saw, 10,000 people coming to Nashville, at least up to maybe 50,000 coming for just the SEC basketball tournament. It's a huge moneymaker for the city, for hotels, for restaurants, rent a car, the transportation, the airlines flying here. Not to mention the money that's just generated from the selling of the seats at the stadium, but we have all this auxiliary money that's generated as well. All that is gone. So we're seeing cities that are going to be financially hurt by the lack of events that are going to be taking place. The NFL draft was in Nashville last year, and this, this year is in Vegas. If they take the draft out of Vegas, I imagine they will. They're going to lose millions of dollars in that city from not having that draft. Last year was the biggest event I've ever seen in Nashville, including all the CMA Fest, including when the Preds have done really well, made it to Stanley Cup Finals. The draft had so many people here. The amount of money that it generated, the good it did for the city was fantastic. Think about Uber drivers making money, the, the people working at restaurants, not the owners of the restaurant, but the people that are working, that are depending upon those individuals. Now, all of a sudden, that revenue is gone. So the financial impact that this is having across the United States as a result of the lack of these events is pretty staggering. You're going to see not only sporting events at that amateur and collegiate level uh, canceled, but you're already starting to see a number of 
really popular uh, social or active events like marathons being canceled or triathlons being canceled. And again, something like the Boston Marathon, which I haven't seen an announcement that it's canceled yet, but I suspect it will be, you're having tens of thousands of people running in very close proximity, sweating on each other, coughing on each other, touching each other. You don't want to have an outbreak as a result of your event. Because if you know it's a possibility and you're not protecting against it, you have that duty to protect. You have that duty to warn the participants. If you're not doing that, then you can be found to be liable and you face greater potential loss. The easiest way to avert that loss is to cancel the event. So we're seeing a massive number of events kind of canceled across the country. And again, the implications that that's having are far-reaching. It's not just in that sport and recreation industry. It's all over. So we have this really interesting situation. As soon as we started to see players get this, the lack of knowledge that we have about the disease makes it very risky for us not to cancel the sporting event and risk transferring it to other players. Because if it spreads throughout an entire league, like the normal flu oftentimes does, spreads throughout an entire team, we see multiple individuals on that team get ill But if it spreads throughout the entire league and we have these individuals getting ill and potentially having uh, more dire consequences, the league risks losing so much more than just canceling for a couple of games. I think what we'll see is we'll see this initial panic kind of continue for the shorter future. But as we learn more about the disease, as we learn more about its transmission, as we learn more about this gestation period, about um, the harmful uh, outcomes and who are the most at-risk populations. As we continue to learn more about it, I think you will see sport leagues slowly start to to start up again. I think most sport leagues for the foreseeable future, even when they start back up, are not going to allow fans in attendance. The risk to the fan, I think, is just too great. To risk the athlete is a little bit different, especially if they're knowing and willing to participate in the games. But we just need more information about the disease so that way we can know more about setting up this risk management plan. Without the information, without understanding the degree of risk that we're facing, we can't come up with a comprehensive way to treat that risk. And that's what a risk management plan teaches us. That's what this exercise teaches us. That's what we as professors try to teach in the classroom to students. It's not just identifying the risk. It's easy to identify a risk sometimes. It's easy to say there's a risk that players can get coronavirus. That's easy. The harder part is to understand the inner workings of that risk. Well, why is that a risk? How much of a risk is it? What can we do to help avoid that? When we're facing a current situation like we are today, where we just don't know those answers, if we don't know the answers to those questions, we can't come up with a method to treat that risk. We have to understand the inner workings of everything in order to determine, are we just going to avoid the risk? In order to determine, are we going to retain the risk? We're going to reduce it. Are we going to transfer the risk onto someone else? But until we understand the inner workings, we can't make that determination. So the easiest and most practical thing to do is just cancel. But once we have that knowledge and once the knowledge catches up with time, which it always does, we'll be able to implement a more proactive risk management plan. We'll be able to put in more steps rather than just avoiding it altogether. I think you're going to start seeing that over the course of the next week. The panic is going to start to die off some. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's what everyone is saying. 
after it gets worse, it's slowly going to start to get better. We're going to learn more about this. The individuals that be within these sporting organizations, within these teams, within these arenas, the individuals that are putting on these events, they're going to have more information. The uh, World Health Organization is going to have more information. They're going to come up with better ways for us to deal with the risk. And we can then start implementing those at that sport level. But for the, for the foreseeable future, that's not going to happen. I hope the conversation here today has, has done a couple of things for you. First, I hope it's helped shine some light on why we took such a drastic step going from not allowing fans at games to all of a sudden just canceling and then seeing that spread across the United States. Hopefully, you understand why in direct relation to understanding what establishing a risk management plan looks like and understanding that we have to understand that risk in its totality for us to fully develop a plan. If we don't understand it in its full totality, oftentimes we just have to eliminate the risk altogether, which in this case is avoiding having sporting events. Hopefully people continue to calm down. Hopefully the panic subsides. And hopefully we're able to learn more about the disease so that those things can happen. If you have any questions about what's happening behind the scenes in these sporting organizations when it comes to the decision-making process and how to handle the outbreak of the coronavirus or about how we go about establishing risk management plans and putting them into action for sporting organizations, please feel free to reach out to us at The Sport Professor. Follow us to stay up to date not only on what's happening with this topic, but other breaking news topics in the world of sports. And also just to get a behind the scenes look at the underpinnings of the sporting world so you can better understand what happens not on the playing field, but off of it. Until next time, though, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.